Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. How do we mourn those we've lost? What are the rituals and rites that allow us to understand our loss? To feel the measure of it? To heal if we need healing? To reach closure if we need closure? For any of us who has had a loved one die, these questions are personal ones. Suddenly we're faced with an emptiness that we can't fill, and, at the same time, an often overwhelming abundance of memory and emotion. And yet the questions are not only personal— Because when we become mourners, we fall back on the cultural practices of mourning that our society offers us. Here in America, visiting hours, funerals, eulogies, obituaries, and wakes are a few of the ways we reckon with our dead. Unsurprisingly, other cultures have other practices. In Madagascar, for example, the Malagalese people have a ritual called Famadahana, where once every five or seven years, Families celebrate their ancestral crypts by exhuming the corpses of their loved ones and spraying them with wine or perfume. It's a celebration of their past full of music and dancing in which some of the living ask for blessings from the dead and others tell stories about them. As strange as such a ritual might seem to us, it also raises the question of whether our own practices do our dead and ourselves justice. Is the way we mourn enough to help us through those we've lost? These are just the sorts of questions, both personal and cultural, that Ashaki Jackson takes up in her poetry collection, Language Lesson. Inspired by the death of her grandmother, these poems begin on an intensely personal note, where loss is felt in the body and the bones. Gradually, that note deepens and expands to encompass other losses and other ways of mourning eventually creating a poetic music that captures our collective losses and collects us in love. Ashaki Jackson, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm very excited to talk about this new collection of poetry. It's called Language Lesson. Uh, It's beautiful and it's poignant uh, and it's rich. And for a small collection, it, it really has quite a range as to what's going on in it, both formally and in terms of of the content. And, and before we turn to the book, I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about you as a poet and, and you know, the sensibility that listeners are going to encounter. You know, where does that come from? What a wonderful question. This is a, a long time coming. Even though the, the chat book is just a few poems, it took about eight years to manifest into what it is now. I started to write more formally in college, and I did not have a particular focus, but my interests were more like multicultural practices, rituals, specifically mortuary rituals. And it was a strange hobby. It was very much a strange hobby. My focus in college was um, psychology with a biology emphasis. I did a lot of lab work. I worked in a microbiology immunology lab. I think I was nerdy, (laughs) Uh, but on the side, 
on the side, I had more interest in the humanities and documenting or capturing some of these cultural practices and trying to figure out where the intersections were. Uh, Over time, as I began to practice the craft a bit more, uh, I received some feedback from wonderful workshop leads like Suhair Hamad and Chris Abani who would tell me, you know, the work is lush, but what, what is the core of the work? What are you masking? And I didn't realize that, you know, even though I was putting the words together, I didn't have um, a skeleton underneath all of this pretty skin. So I spent some time away from the work and then I had a life changing moment where I lost my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who who lived with us out here in California. I was very close to her and a very unaware or unsure of what the language of mourning was. I went back to the writing. I said, this is what it is. Here's my skeleton. Losing my grandmother is going to be the bones of this work. So I went back to my notes on these multicultural practices, the morning rituals, and it all made sense. Like when we are grieving, when we are experiencing the sense of loss that renders us speechless, we look for ways to, to cope, to care for ourselves. And I think we've been raised, especially in the United States, to, to grieve in particular ways. There is a mourning period. There is the wearing of black, a, a ceremony, a sermon. You lay the body to rest or you cremate the body. The body has some type of container. Um, you cry. You're quiet. You eat a lot. Those are all things that are customary in this culture, I would say. But it's not always sufficient. You always want more. I wanted more. I wanted to remember my grandmother in different ways. I wanted my body to feel like itself. So the process of grieving included writing these poems, thinking of and with an eye to other cultural perspectives. So there are some cultures that burn the body and send the body out to sea. Um, In Judaism, there's the covering of the mirror that you don't worry about your appearance during grief. Uh, There are practices in the Amazon where parts of the body are consumed. So in terms of repast that we think of as, you know, everyone coming over to the aunt's home after the ceremony and let's eat some lasagna and some chicken. There are cultures where the practice is to consume a part of the body to either take that person's memory with them or free the spirit from the body so the spirit doesn't linger anymore. All of these things I found so appropriate. The keening, the crying, the, the putting oneself underneath the dead body to keep the dead body off the floor until all the family members from other villages could come and grieve together. There were so many yeses in the work that I had previously researched that felt right 
in mourning the loss of my grandmother. And that ended up in this book. So just in short about me, I like studying mortuary rights. <laughs> I'm a little creepy and I'm a nerd who writes. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's creepy at all. I, I think that there, I mean, one of the things I think you hear so much and you hear it particularly at, at moments when you, you lose a loved one, lose someone close, is, is just how impoverished the American rituals of, of mourning can be. Um, you know, the, the pragmatic, work-driven culture that, that gives you a period of time and says, now it's over and you have to, to be back in it. And, and I think anyone who's lost someone can, can understand that you need more, you need some sort of some sort of commerce, some sort of relationship with, with those who are gone because they're not gone for you. Uh, right. And so I think that, that that's, that's beautiful. And I wonder, so, so here you are as a poet and you have the, the page or the screen in front of you and, and this desire and this impulse. How does that be, to begin? How does that begin to be resolved in the language of poetry? How, how can poetry be the, a vehicle for that kind of, elegiac reckoning and ritual. Something beautiful about the genre is the absence of restraints. And by restraints, I mean the rules of punctuation, the rules of space, how you approach a page. The poet tells you or gives you the cues to experience the work that they've presented. I found that uniquely freeing in writing this work, which has a number of spaces and breath. It's a call to silence in between lines and stanzas. I push the words around the page. Uh, there are there are a couple of pages where the words are so heavy they just fall to the bottom of the page, and that's what you have. I think poetry allows me the the freedom to express the grief as it sounds by using space as punctuation and as it looks by leaving the reader wondering or leaving the reader's eyes wandering across the page, looking for the next word in desperation, sort of like that feeling of grief and anguish. Yes. I think I would want the listeners to know that, that this is not poetry that could be, presented, you know, there's, there's that joke of like, you, you put the lines into prose and can you tell where the line breaks would be? This is, this is a poetry that's embodied, that cultivates the white space of the page. It, it resonates outward. You feel as though that there's a, a tremendous amount of depth behind the language that is there. And the language feels palpable and sensual and embodied, I think in a way that you know, sometimes you, you read poems in The New Yorker and you think, I don't even know why that's a poem. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your take on my work. And there are moments when I look at The New Yorker and I'm like, is that punctuation? What's going on here? It's a trick. <laughs> but that's just my style. That is just my aesthetic. Yes. Well, I'm hoping at some point you might be willing to read one or two so that, that people can get a sense of, of, of the world of the, the book. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to, to start with a poem that I think is the core of the work. It's titled, After We Lost Her, I Refuse to Give Anyone More Than Ten Words. 
The mouth opens like a grave. Our mouths open like her grave. Our mouths, her grave, thick-tongued cavern. From our throats she blooms, Sunday hymn toward a quiet sky. Thick-tongued quiet, our mouths caverns, graves. Our throats bloom, a Sunday sky hymn. Throat hymns, the sky a grave of tongues. Thick blooms quiet our cavernous mouths, like a Sunday. Our mouths, our mouths, our mouths, our mouths, quiet and sky. That's beautiful. Thank you. I wrote, I think that I wrote this early in the loss, but far enough so that I wasn't too swallowed by the feelings because there could have been fewer words. It was just a snapshot. This poem is a snapshot of, you know, the dearth of language I experienced in my mourning period. I didn't want to talk to people. I didn't want to hear the radio, no television. It was silent for a good two to three years. When I went to work, things were very natural. I would talk to people. I would engage. If I volunteered, I would engage. I would come home and it would need to be silent. I didn't want to waste any words and I wasn't sure exactly what to say. So that, that poem reflected that period. So, so what is it like to work in a moment where, you know, these poems are, are very lyric, um, some of them, you know, at first glance are almost haiku length. Um, to work on that edge between silence, a necessary silence, and the few words that, that have to come out of that, um, I think that's a very interesting edge. It is, and the words can always be rearranged. It was a bit of um, an exercise in determining what I wanted to say using the words that I was willing to give. So it was all about how many times can I convey my need and my loneliness and my sadness with just these words? What are the configurations of sadness? How does it sound if I put this word first or last? And I think that that one of the things I hear as you say that is, is the way in which the there's almost a kind of refrain that gets repeated and varied in that poem that you just read, right? It's like music coming back and rearranging itself to find the right form mm-hmm. um, until you get to that, that very powerful ending. Definitely. Refrain is important in grief. I think it's, I think of it as those, I'm not very familiar with the cycle of, of grief, but it's not, it's not cyclical. It's not linear. It's one of those, what is that cursive L shape? It looks like the infinity sign. Maybe that's what grief maybe looks like because you think you're done and it sneaks right back up on you. And you go back right back in the way mm-hmm. that memory does, right? As long exactly. as you have memory, you will, 
we'll be bringing back the people that we lo- that we lose and um that's one of the beauties of memory but also it's bittersweetness yes well tell me a little bit about um the way in which th- you see these poems working together because there's there are themes that get picked up and move forward um but there is also a kind of center moment in the book where it seems like the book pauses and rests before it moves forward. And I think, you know, there are poets that put together, you know, I think what are traditionally called occasional collections where it's, I happen to write these poems over an X period of time and I lump them in a book together. And then there are really poets that think about the book as an experience from beginning to end. And, and I think this book is very much in that, that second category of you start and you take a journey that moves you across poems rather than many small ones. I agree. And I had some difficulty arranging this work only because I made a decision to expand the practice of grief. This was a collection about losing grandmother, but the loss translated to other spaces that were relevant when I was, when I was writing the work. So we start off with, her body and her body's failure. We move into the loss and the song of, of mourning or the dance of mourning. And I transition to maybe the practice, maybe the practice and what's appropriate. I know that there is, um, there are a couple of pieces here that relate to war and, um, the, the crash of Malaysian flight uh, 370 um, and that anthropological piece that I was mentioning about uh, Amazon, Amazonian communities waiting to, to eat the body. I feel as if I, I left the book in a place where we're now talking about practices. We've moved from the internal and the personal to the broad. So at the end, it should start to be or become a manual. Instead of me giving you my narrative of loss, now I'm letting you see what this loss looks like in other settings and also giving permission, if it was even sought, to grieve however you want as needed. Um, the person who I, I got most of my ritual information from, a researcher named Cecilia McCallum, is, uh, I think she's a cultural anthropologist, and she's actually lived in a variety of places, and she's written these articles. And, and I thought to myself, it's in the academy. People are studying this loss and this grief. All you have to do is pick up the work that's already been done. This is a study. And I think that bringing it to more people's attention as that, as a study, is more useful in impacting the reader who might not be as intimately involved in who my grandmother was and why this loss is important to me than here's what we do in grief. I think you have that poem that you you write after her called Gathering the Bones. Um, 
And yes. I, I just want to make sure that, that listeners know that when you get to that poem or when you look in the book, you will not get something like a Wikipedia entry on practices of mourning and grief, that, that these are, are still incantatory poems. Um, and one of the, the things that struck me so forcefully in reading the, connect, the collection is that you know, you you can indeed read about these these practices of of grief and mourning and uh, sort of public ritual. And uh, the book is interesting enough that you end up googling some things the second read through to see, you know, what what is the photograph she's re- referring to and and things like that. Um, but but the poems are also given experience that's not simply reported. That's not simply the sharing of information. And I think that that definitely the way you are constructing the poems, they're things you, you enter and move through and you can bring more of yourself to them than I think an exchange of information uh, would lead. Absolutely. And when you say the exchange, it, it just reminds me that I want, not only when I write this, I don't all, only want to like capture my feelings or, or cope or be at peace with what has happened myself, which is very insular. I want people to join me. I want this work to land on other people in similar ways that makes them feel less alone and hurt. And and let's take a minute just to depart from the book for a second, because you are not a poet who's in an ivory tower or in a garret somewhere or in a room or a coffee shop doing your work for yourself. I think you have a very different vision of what poetry can do and who should write it and who it's for. And I'd love it if you'd share a little bit of that with us. Sure. Let's see. I don't know if I ever thought that I would become um, a poetry, a poet in the ivory, ivory tower. That wasn't my goal. I was very interested in once I got the hang of writing, making it available to populations who also would benefit from exploring their their thoughts and their confusions through writing. So in, in my history, I have volunteered with a lot of youth, specifically youth who are incarcerated, who otherwise don't have a lot of tools available to them while they're locked up. And I've, I've volunteered with organizations such as Right Girl and Inside Out Writers, um, Street Poets, just to to work with people uh, who have something to say, but didn't know they had anything to say. Could you just give us a little glimpse into what your teaching looks like in that moment when you're working with incarcerated youth and you have them and you, you have, you know, some paper and some pens and you're going to do poetry. What does that look like? Sure. First I start with, Work that is contemporary, because I think that there's still uh, a perception that poetry is is aged, it's vintage, it captures dead people, and air is long gone. But, you know, there are people who are living and thriving. There's, you know, John Murillo and Nate Marshall and Khadijah Queen and Bettina Judd, and they're subversive in their work and they're talking to you through their work and um, they are very open. They are allowing you not only insight into themselves, but they're using words that you use to capture some of their, to capture some of their feelings. So I, I try to bring the, 
the contemporary conversation to the table first. And then I say, you all can do this similarly. Like your words have a particular meaning, depth, currency that other people would like to access. I'm going to ask you some questions and I want you to be honest. One thing I recognize about incarceration is that the words that you share are often dangerous, whether they might be incriminating to your case or your attorney doesn't want you to speak or you have to build a narrative for yourself to exist behind bars. Um, When you ask people in that position to tell us who you are or what your trajectory is or what happened the last 10 years to get you here, you get encyclopedias. Like you've never seen writing similar to a waterfall like this because people aren't asked. You realize that you're unzipping something, you're opening something, and you're allowing just the free writing and the the memory keeping, the documentation to start. That process is important. It's cathartic, and there's also music in it. We eventually talk about craft and shaping and line breaks, and if you want your words to seem heavy, whether you want them to be more um, in the form of prose, so it's a rectangular block and it goes from left to right, so you're looking at bricks, building bricks. Or if you want it to be quickly paced, if you want it to be narrow and have line breaks that help you rush through the work because there's a sense of urgency, we talk about that later. But the first thing is, you haven't been allowed to speak in a very long time. I'm telling you, speak. That's wonderful. That's just wonderful. I'm curious about about something you just said. I mean, it makes perfect sense that if you haven't had the chance to tell your story, and of course you should have the chance to tell your story, that the moment that, that someone extends that invitation, that there would be this, this loosening of a flood. I'm curious about the poetic note that you say there's, and the music comes with it. Could you tell me a little bit about that music that just seems to be there organically already? There's always a sound to the work, even in my work. My work, I imagine, um, is <clears throat> kind of a, a low hum, a low hum that you would find in maybe a church, a monastery. There's some type of warmth, healing buzz to it. So some of the work that I've read from, from youth who are either locked up or youth who are coming out of incarceration, I hear traffic sounds. I hear start, stop, start, stop. Um, I hear their their neighborhoods, parties, um, people coming home late after work. I hear helicopters sometimes because that's the city in which we live. There are probation uh, camps, we call them probation camps, or, or youth jails, that are located in geographically sound places. And by that, I mean... They're surrounded by particular sounds that are unique to that environment, whether they are close to water or close to a freeway. Um, There is one that's close to a dog pound. So when I hear some of the work, you hear the interruption of barking in their words because somehow the sound of the dog 
became choppy in what the youth were writing. So the words are no longer very smooth in the narrative. You get um, maybe an expletive or a quick line or I didn't do it or I did do it. These are all woven into the fabric of their work. So I can hear things and I share that with them. So I'm, I'm guessing part of, of your job is to, to be a kind of acoustic sounding board to help him, them hear their own music more fully. Yes. Yes. Because they don't think about words as song quite yet. Many of the, the youth are serving time when they should be in school. And they're missing a lot of this instruction about English and the sentence, sentence construction. I mean, they're missing a lot of education. And when they come out, they have to do a lot of catching up, but those services aren't always, always provided. So being there to insert type of a, a type of poetic take on the writing that they're doing while they're Generating while they're honing craft, I think is also necessary in the work. So it's it's cathartic, but there's also an educational component that we're trying to fill. There's a gap there, and cause incarceration causes gaps, huge gaps that you can't always return to. So this is part of that that gap filling process. And I, I think one of the the primary motivators for any education is that it it matters to the person who's being educated. And so I can't imagine anything more motivating in a way than I have to learn the craft in order to create the poems that are me and my own music. Yes. And how cool is it to learn based on your experience? It's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for doing that work. No, thank you. It's, it's fun for me. I like, I really enjoy being with the youth. Well, I, I do want to return to your book and, and something you said about the, the music in your own work, that it sounds like something you might hear, the low hum of a, a church or a monastery. And, and one of the things that I do admire about your poetry, you know, is that, that so much of the poetry we see out there is, is written kind of under the, the secular banner of, you know, here we are, post-enlightenment. And, and there's a real spiritual dimension to your work. Um, and I think that takes a kind of, of nerve and, and courage. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this aspect. I mean, do you see yourself as a, a spiritual writer or is that something that's, that's part of the larger calling of being a poet? Have I got you wrong? I think writing is spiritual as it is political. I was raised Christian and I won't say that I am good at it. Oh my goodness, I'm not good at it. <laughs> but there are moments where when I when I write, I think it's freeing in a way that I am centered and my mind is focused, which I think is key in meditation. And I think that meditation is a form of prayer. It's a form of focus and you know, bringing together many thoughts and centering it to one just to get that one breath out or that one poem out is a difficult exercise that you have to hone over time. So in that way, I think that I'm a spiritual writer. When I write about my grandmother, um, I'm probably spiritual because I'm capturing her. She was a, a church woman. 
I remember her giving me peppermints, trying to keep me quiet while we were sitting in church. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily pervasive in, in all of my work as if, if we're defining spirituality as religious. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that there is a level of spirituality and meditation and, and actually getting the work done. Um, I'm not sure I can say too much more yeah. about that for every, every writer, but there are, there are moments in another collection that I wrote. I, I do question God's role in observing some of the things that are happening on earth. And I think that's the most religious that I've been in, in my writing, but there is, I do go back to the, the meditative thinking. Yes, and I, I think in, in that collection, which is called Surveillance, yes, which there is a, a New Books Network interview on that, so I, I hope that listeners will, will check that out, that it's, it's very much in the, the tradition of, you know, challenge to, to the Almighty that, you know, the, and the problem of evil. How can you let this happen? How can you stand yes. by and watch? Um, and, and that has teeth and an edge all its own. And, um, and I, I commend that book to listeners too, because it it will show such a range of the poet that we're speaking to today. Thank you. Well, so you, you had mentioned that this has a kind of eight year Genesis that's come to fruition. Um, what are you working on now? What, what is your, your next project? So my next project is extending the book that we were just talking about, Surveillance. And each of these, each of the collections that I, I published this year or that were published this year, uh, Language Lesson and Surveillance, were chapbooks, particularly for the reason that they were emotionally overwhelming. And I had to put the writing aside. Um, chapbooks are wonderful as as marketing products for longer collections. Um, they can be just, you know, a brief conversation and stand alone. But each of the collections that I wrote are the beginning to longer experiences, as it were. I will be extending surveillance, working backwards, I think, from uh, the laws that permit surveillance, the laws in the U.S. before it was the U.S. that permitted surveillance and how we got to where we are currently. So it's a bit political. There's definitely some historical underpinnings that I'm citing. It it, it gets a little more academic. So when people say, um, you know, where did these laws come from? They can actually point a finger to the 1600s and then question why are we implementing laws from the 1600s modern day? So that's what I'm working on currently. Well, that sounds fascinating. And the work is certainly worth expanding. I I think it stands alone. I think that there's, I mean, one of the things you see in that collection, I think compared to language lessons is that there's, there's a similar degree of intimacy with the reader Um, in language lessons. It's this kind of willingness to share a harrowing experience of, of the death of your grandmother and then allow the reader to inhabit that um, and, and feel through it. Uh, the intimacy in surveillance, it's very much there's, you know, you have the figure of the public and the figure of the speaker and the second person you is, is working through the poems and it's much more intense and immediate um, 
but I think no less engaged and engaging. Thank you. I wanted that one to be a call to action, but a passive one. Like there's such power in saying the word you. And I recognize that after reading Claudia Rankine's Citizen, I mean, there are a number of collections that implement this second person point of view, but in the context of uh, social justice and a call to action, there is a weight when someone reads it. No longer is it a story that is external to you. You are now being requested to participate and I'd like to experiment with that a bit farther versus language lesson, which is, I think it's insular to a point where I wasn't very concerned with who else had to be involved. I wasn't very concerned with bringing everyone into my, my sadness. So I kept that as um, first and third person surveillance is definitely an action book. Well, I wish you every success with it, and I thank you so much for your time today and for chatting with us. I appreciate your insightful questions. Thank you so much for spending time with my work and inviting me to talk about it. Oh, my pleasure. We'll look forward to the expanded version of Surveillance, and uh, I'll encourage listeners to, to tide themselves over by reading the version that's available now. Thank you. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Ashaki Jackson author of Language Lesson on the New Books Network.